December 9, 2004, the Associated Press had a really unusual headline. Here's what it said. Famous atheist now believes in God. That was a pretty striking headline. And then here was a subheading. One of the world's leading atheists now believes in God more or less based on scientific evidence. I was so intrigued by the more or less. But the person that they referred to was, was uh, Anthony Flew, who was the leading philosopher of atheism for several decades. He wrote 40 books. Uh, I mean, he had just a, 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 um, an unimaginable influence on atheism through the last number of decades. But yet he had a, a wound up having a very, very significant time of exploring and rethinking. And he eventually said, I no longer can be an atheist because I now believe that there is a God. Now, I do want to be very clear. He didn't necessarily believe that in the Christian God. But what he now said is on the basis of scientific discoveries, I can no longer believe there is no such thing as God. And then he continued on his journey to try and figure out you know, who exactly this God was. We... Um, we are talking about worldview all summer long in different ways. And there's probably no single question that is of greater importance than this. Does God exist or not? That's the number one worldview question. Now, assuming you answer yes to that question, then there's a second worldview question. So this God who exists, what is that God like? And there have been lots of different answers given to that. The third worldview question then is very, very significant. If a God exists who is a certain kind of God, then how do I relate to, how do I connect with, how do I engage with an experience of that God? So those are just enormously significant questions. Now, I am pretty sure that if we wound up just serving every one of you right now and saying, how many of you became a Christian because you read Genesis chapter 1? I don't think we'd have much response. I didn't become a Christian because I read Genesis chapter 1. I became a Christian because of Jesus. I became a Christian because I was convinced that Jesus was Savior, and I was sinful, and I was broken, and I was hurting, and I was you know, ruining my life, and I, I needed healing, forgiveness, salvation. I needed all kinds of stuff, and I really believed that Jesus was going to be that person for me. And sure enough, when I became a Christian, my life began to change in extraordinary ways very, very quickly. <clears throat> the majority of people become Christians because of Jesus. However... There are many reasons why people don't become Christians, many reasons, and there are also many reasons why people who did have some kind of Christian commitment begin to walk away from faith, from Christianity. And one of the things we know is that especially for young people over the last number of years, one of those really big things going on is they struggle with what is the relationship of Christianity and science. How do you wind up navigating your way through these very complex creation evolution things? And especially, how do you wind up actually you know, having a Christianity of integrity when today many people are just saying you cannot intellectually believe in this thing called Christianity. It just doesn't make any sense. You can't with integrity believe in Christianity anymore in light of all that we know from science. And so there are things that keep people from Jesus. There are things that we have been following Jesus for a long time. We just start to get really troubled by and we don't have good answers. And unfortunately, too many times Christians don't take the time to go and search out some of those answers. Well, Today in Genesis chapter 1, and in fact for the rest of the month, Genesis chapter 1, today is God the Creator. Next week we're going to look at creating, and then the final week of June we're going to look at the creation that we now live in. It's going to be a great, great month. In fact, I wish we had all summer just to talk about Genesis 1, but we just have a few weeks. 
Now, I'm going to do a couple things today. Uh, I'm going to spend most of my time talking about, you know, why God exists, you know, why we can believe and have confidence that God exists. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking a little bit about, okay, so what are some of the qualities that Genesis 1 tells us about this God who exists? And then I'm going to finish up with saying, so the God who exists, the God who is like that, you know, what are a couple of appropriate things for us to, to do? And as I'm going through here, one of the things I really want to try and help you understand is science is not incompatible with, Christianity is not incompatible with science. It, it just isn't. In fact, there's some wonderful supportive things from science that, that just support our, our Christian understandings about God, the Creator, and in the beginning. So let me, uh, let me read one verse from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you a couple, a couple minutes, of, a few other verses all throughout the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. All right, that's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. From that point on, all the way through the Bible, that verse is repeated in different ways. In fact, all through the Psalms, the Psalms regularly talk about the Creator God. Uh, just one of the many that I could have chosen, Psalm 102. In the beginning, okay, that's Psalm 102. Sound familiar? In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And the psalm goes on for many more verses talking about, hey, at some point the heavens and the earth may perish, but, but God, you live forever. Now, all through the psalms, there's a couple of reasons why people worship God, but one of the reasons is because God is the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth. And what an amazing creator he is, what an amazing creation we live in. You get to the prophets, and here's just one from, from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this is in chapter 45. And chapter 44, chapter 45, lots of creational language. But here's one verse, verse 18 from 45. This is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. I mean, wow, there's like five or six different words in there just talking about the create, fashion, made, found, form. And He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Th those kinds of things are all the way through the Old Testament. It's not just a Genesis 1-1 and done. It's all the way through the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament, we come to the Gospel of John. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, it's very, very obvious that Matthew is, is saying Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Moses came down from the mountain with the law of God. Here is Jesus with the new way, the new law, the Sermon on the Mount. And it is a far upgraded way of understanding. But in the Gospel of John... John is not looking at Moses. John is going back to, to creation itself. So in John chapter 1, in the beginning, does that sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And it continues, in Him was life and light. And by the way, a little bit later on and after the message, we're going to celebrate communion. And communion is all about the light of the world. The communion is all about the Word of God. Communion is all about the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But long before He was our Savior, He was, was Jesus, our Creator, our Maker. And Him was life. Now, the Apostle Paul certainly understands this. And he winds up saying in Colossians chapter 1. For in Him, the Son, okay, that's, uh, that's actually one verse before that. But in Him, the Son, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And then I'll give you one more, which I, I, didn't, I didn't get for a lower third, but it comes from the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4. Listen to this worship. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why are you worthy? 
Well, because you have created all things, and by your will they are created and have their being. I mean, it's just this consistent, from Genesis through the book of Revelation, there is a creator God, and he is amazing as creator, and what he has made is beautiful, and we worship, we worship not the creation, but we worship God, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, there is a, a word called cosmology. Uh, very simply, it refers to the study of origins, the study of beginnings. You know, how did things come about in the first place? And all kinds of people are interested in cosmology. There are philosophers who study, spend their life studying origins. There are obviously scientists who are very, very interested in the origins of life, the origins of the universe. And of course, the religions of the world have their, also their understanding of cosmology. Now, atheism, which I'll talk about in a little bit, that is a cosmology that says there is no God, and so therefore we're going to believe that the only thing that there's ever been is this universe, this materialistic universe. That's all that there is. On the other hand, Genesis chapter 1 in the entire Bible has a biblical cosmology where God, whenever the Bible's talking about origins, uh, it mentions God is the one who is there. Now, when we, when we come to study when we come to study Genesis chapter 1, we need, we need to be aware of one particular principle of Bible study, hermeneutics, how you study text. Very, very important. If you don't understand this, we're going to likely make some mistakes about Genesis chapter 1. What was the original context of those words? What was the original audience? How would they have heard those words? What would they have understood those words to mean? And what was the original purpose for why they were written? Now, that is crucial when it comes to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and chapter 3, by the way. Context, the audience, and the purpose. Now, the original context was very simply this. It was a religious context. Uh, there, there's a, a, an acronym, A-N-E. It stands for the Ancient Near Eastern Religions of the Biblical World. Ancient Near Eastern Religions. And basically, it's referring to all those religions that existed at the time of, of, the, of the biblical Hebrews and as their faith was, was emerging and forming. There were others that were already there as well. And all of these different biblical religions, and some of them here, I think we have a map here. Uh, Egypt was huge. In fact, Egypt was the main context for the people of God because they had been slaves in Egypt for centuries and they were coming out of Egypt. And, and Moses, the one who I believe was the author of, 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 uh, of Genesis, he was well acquainted with Egyptian religion. He would have received the finest education and all that Egypt had to offer uh, living in the Pharaoh's household. So Moses was very, very familiar with Egyptian cosmology. But, but there were also other cosmologies in, in, in Assyria and Babylon. They were the, the Mesopotamian cosmologies, similar to the Egyptian uh, uh, cosmology. But they all had this. Uh, fundamentally, it was a religious way of understanding life. And if we could say, here's, here's the Egyptian description of the origins, here's the Genesis description of origins, here's the Babylonian Assyrian description of origins, and on, you would see that there are an amazing number of similarities between all those accounts. However, you would also very quickly notice, but what Genesis is saying is also radically different than all the other accounts. Genesis, yes, it's using some of the same language, it's some of the same mindset, because that's simply how people thought in those days. It's almost like Moses, you know, God through Moses is like, I have to use some language and ideas that are at least familiar to you out there so you can get a sense of, and so I can kind of like recorrect your thinking about, about these things. I'll tell you a little bit more about that today. I'm going to tell you even more about that next week. <clears throat> but the fundamental thing is religion, not science, because science did not exist back then. 
what we understand about science is a relatively modern thing and the questions of science and the processes and conclusions and insights is relatively recent, the last couple of centuries. And so when we wind up looking at Genesis 1 and thinking it is the answer to all of our scientific questions, it is not. It wasn't their context. The audience would have never understood that and it wasn't the purpose for why it was being written. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are much more talking about who is this creator God, because everybody believes in a creator God, so who exactly is this creator God, and, and what did he do, and why did he do it? Those are the questions of Genesis 1. They're really not concerned with how and when. I mean, it would have been very easy to say in the beginning about 10,000 years ago, but it doesn't say that. It would have been very easy to say in the beginning 100,000. It doesn't say that. It just says in the beginning God. So the focus is much more on, hey, who is this God that is our creator? Especially because this God has delivered us from Egypt and all the gods of Egypt. And of course, you read all about that in, in, in Exodus and later. But what Moses wants to do in Genesis chapter 1 is, I just want to understand, I want you to understand how great our creator God is and how utterly different and distinct he is from all the other religious options for how did everything come about. All right, so here are a couple things, though, uh, just about Genesis chapter 1 that help us understand the existence of God. And just number one, God is. God exists. You know, the Bible just is not concerned to prove the existence of God. It doesn't need to because when the Bible was written, everybody believed in God. The question was not, does God exist? The real question is, well, well who is this God that exists? Genesis 1 is not proving the existence of God. It is assuming the existence of God. 30 times in chapter 1, now this is going to be very different from Egypt, from, from the Mesopotamian stuff, very different. It's 30 times God is mentioned, Elohim, 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 and the word refers to the great, almighty, sovereign, amazing God. The word is just like lifting up this amazingly powerful God. 30 times it is used in one chapter. By the way, I'll tell you a little bit more about this in July. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, you no longer read Elohim. Now you always read every time Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Yahweh is a much more personal descriptive term. Yahweh is a, a term that is talking about the relational God that is moving into engagement with his people. So chapter one, Elohim. Chapter two, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Again, I'll tell you more about that. But, but God is just assumed. Now today we actually have a different context than they did back in Genesis chapter one. Today we have people that don't believe in God. In 2006, a journalist for the first time coined the phrase, the new atheists. And he coined their phrase to refer to a very popular group of emerging writers. You know, they had science background, philosophy background, one was a journalist. Uh, there were four in particular, but they became very, very well known. In fact, you might be familiar with some of their books. Uh, uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a book, Can We, um, yeah, The God Delusion. And Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, God is Not Great. Sam Harris wrote a book, The End of Faith, and they were just three of the very well-known books. I mean, they wrote dozens and dozens of books. And those books started appearing in the beginning of, of this century, and they had a huge impact for two reasons. Number one is they were written in a very popular way. They explained things very, very simply. And number two, they were very aggressive and demeaning of religion. Uh, now, religion in general, but Christianity in particular. And those two things, just you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of most of those books sold. By the time they were done, millions of copies of those books and others 
uh, had been read by people and devoured by people. And it actually started to change and shift the mental landscape, which is why you know, we need to talk about these things a little bit, because there are many people who read those books and others like them that just do not believe that Christianity or religion at all is actually credible for a 21st century person. Now, I don't have time to, to really engage with some of the things in those books. I'll be mentioning a few things later on through the series and also in the special seminar we're doing uh, a little bit later in the month. But those books have been significantly criticized, not just by Christians, but those books have been criticized by philosophers. Those books have been criticized by scientists. Those books have been criticized by other atheists. And they're just saying, because they were written so popularly and they were so aggressive, they just make mistake, after mistake, after mistake. They take things out of context. Uh, some scientists say it's just bad science. Some philosophers say it's just bad philosophy. So, but they became very popular and very influential. So that's part of the context we now live in, whereas we Christians and, and believers in God, we believe that God exists. There are some people that don't. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we read also this, that God is eternal and uncreated in the beginning. But we can even go back further. In Psalm 90, verse 2, before you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not only is God in the beginning, God is before the beginning. Now, you know, over the last couple of months, I've been reading in fields that I normally don't read in. My, I mean, my, my theology, my Bible study, I mean, I've done that for years and years. But I say, I just need to read a little bit more in the realms of science and the realms of philosophy about, about cosmology. And I'll tell you what, you start to read this stuff and my brain hurts. I mean, it's complicated. Um, like, like, when did time begin? When did time start? And what was going on before time began? And how big is the universe? And how far does the universe go? All right, when you get to that point, what's beyond that? And it's like your brain starts to hurt. And, I mean, and it should hurt because we are not well equipped to understand uh, infinity and eternity. I mean, those are huge, huge uh, issues and themes. And yet that's exactly what cosmology is all about. And here, here the Bible is saying, in the beginning and before the beginning. Now, by the way, this is one of those areas where Genesis is drastically different from, from the Egyptian cosmology, from the other cosmologies. It's drastically different. In the beginning, God. Egypt said, in the beginning, water. In fact, most of the world religions back then had a sense of in the beginning, there was some material existence and it was, was primarily, if not exclusively, water. Chaotic, dark water, that's all there was. The universe was water. And then the Egyptian cosmologists, and somehow out of that water, wind came. Well, how'd wind come if there's only water? Because wind depends on atmosphere and there's no air, there's only water. They don't explain that, they just say that's what happened. And somehow a god began to emerge out of the water. And then eventually the wind separated the water and started to make land and all kinds of things like that. And, but, but in the beginning was water. And out of the water came a god. Well, Genesis says, no, in the beginning there wasn't water. In the beginning there was God. And that's where Genesis is, is radically different. The, the Hebrew Christian faith is radically different. In the beginning, from everlasting to everlasting, there was God. And then some other things started to come about. Now, by the way, materialistic science for today is a little bit like those ancient religions. Uh, materialistic science says, in the beginning, the universe was. Do you know until the 1960s, that was, a standard, that was a standard scientific belief? It was called the steady state theory of the universe. The universe, the physical matter, the energy of the universe, it has always existed. There was never a time when the universe didn't exist. And of course, you want to say, well, how do you know that? Where did that come from? 
But uh, by the 1960s, they had changed, and now most scientists believe in what's called the Big Bang Theory. And why they believed in the Big Bang Theory is because now they had these amazing, massive telescopes that could see further into the universe, and they actually could tell by science that the universe is expanding, the universe is getting larger. And that implies that the universe is getting larger at one time it was smaller, and at one time it was infinitely small, and they posited there was a Big Bang that got everything started. Now, it was only by the 1960s that that was widely believed. Scientists didn't actually want to believe the Big Bang because they said, oh, man, um, it's one thing to say that the universe has always existed, but now to say the universe didn't exist, that leads to some difficult questions. Oh, well, if the universe didn't exist, if there was nothing, then what caused something? You know, how, how, can, how can something, how can everything come from nothing? And scientists actually were troubled by those questions because they knew that religions had some answers. And the Christian religion says, yeah, in the beginning, before the beginning, from everlasting to everlasting, God. And so there were some real struggles that were going on in the world of science with wrestling through that. Well, again, the Christian faith, Genesis, wound up, you know, God is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, that ties in with this next statement. Uh, not, not, it's not explicit from the book of Genesis, but it is implied. I'm going to give you a very explicit statement from later. And that is that God is a wise creator. Jeremiah chapter 10. God made the earth by his power. So we know that he's powerful, but he founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. The biblical understanding is there is a wise God who has designed an amazing, amazing universe. All right, I'm going to geek out on you for about three minutes, maybe four, perhaps five. <laughs> let, me, let me geek out with my, uh, with my general understanding of some scientific things that are going on. So there are a couple of principles. One is called the anthropic principle, and it just means that this universe seems ready-made for life. Anthropos is the word man, and the anthropic principle is just this universe seems well-designed for life. And then there's another word called biophilic, which bios is life and, and philos is friendly. The universe is friendly or biased for life. Man, there's all kinds of interesting books I've, I've been reading. One, one is called... Um, can we put it up there? I forget what it's called. <laughs> the Privileged Planet. Thank you. The Privileged Planet. I caught it. Did you see? I caught that before it came up. The Privileged Planet. Uh, by the way, uh, written by scientists looking at it is striking how the Earth seems to be this privileged planet. There are all kinds of things about Earth that if you don't know these things scientifically, you have no idea how special this planet is. This other book I mentioned, The Anthropic Principle. Oh, my word. My brain hurts when I try to read this thing. And they're saying, hey, we're trying to make this stuff as understand, understandable to a larger audience. But, I mean, it is filled with fact after fact after fact about the fine-tuning of the universe. So here's like an image I, I like to use. Uh, just picture this immense console, some kind of control board. And imagine that as God has a universe designing machine. Okay, it's a universe designing machine. And God says, okay, I'm going to set, I'm gonna set the, the factor for how gravity is. I'm going to set for electromagnetism. I'm going to set for the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force and on. And, and God's, God's dialing in all these different knobs. Here's what science, okay, this is what science has discovered. Christian science, not Christian science, but what science has discovered is every one of those knobs is fine-tuned. There's about 30 major knobs about the laws of physics that they are fine-tuned. And here's what scientists believe, that if you adjust a number of those by even 1%, a 1% adjustment, the universe will not be capable of having life anywhere. 
I mean, it's amazing. It's a scientific discovery about the fine-tuning of the laws of physics. By the way, here's another question that some of these scientists and philosophers get into. It says, and, and why are the laws of physics even the way they are? We just know why they are. I mean, we know what they are. We don't know why they're that way. There's nothing that said they had to be that way, but they are that way. And some other philosophers and scientists say, gee, it's not just 30 knobs, but there's about 140 knobs. Hugh Ross is one of these brilliant scientists, and I think his list is up to about 180, uh, 180 features of physics, chemistry, and biology, that if these things are not fine-tuned, if the dial gets turned, then, then the universe and this earth is simply not capable of sustaining life. And so what's going on is all of these scientists are just saying, man, I mean, this universe apparently this universe is designed for life. Now, here's where a lot of the materialistic science get all junked up. But if it's designed for life, then that would imply there is a designer of the universe. We don't want to admit a designer, and so therefore we say, well, it is only apparent design. But then here's where the rub comes. You look at even 30 of those major knobs, all three of them have to be dialed in the way they are. And, and if just one of them is not dialed in right, the universe no longer works. And what if it's 180? And so therefore, the odds of the universe actually being able to support life are astronomically small, infinitely small, if there's not a designer. All kinds of scientists are coming to those conclusions, not necessarily Christian. Scientists are coming to those conclusions. By the way, that's why Anthony Flew, the philosopher of atheism, eventually changed his mind. He said, the more I studied science and the more I just saw all the evidence for design, I can no longer believe in an accidental universe. This universe is a product of design. Now, let me just tell you a couple famous philosophers. And here's, by the way, some of those books I mentioned earlier. Boy, they quote things out of context. They pull things out of context. Dawkins is, is just joyful to say that Einstein was an atheist. No, he wasn't. Here's Einstein. His own words, I am not an atheist. <laughs> I don't think I can call myself a pantheist. Okay, a pantheist is somebody who just believes like the universe itself is God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, and we only dimly understand those laws. Oh man, Einstein knew that there was a mathematician that had designed the universe of some sort. Everyone who is seriously engaged in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that the laws of nature manifest the existence of a spirit vastly superior to that of men and in the face of whom we should just feel modest and humble. Now, by the way, he's not saying he believes in the Christian God, but he's just saying, I'm, I'm not an atheist. I can't be an atheist. There's too much design in the universe. Now, I have some more quotes from four or five of the first tier scientists in the history of science. Uh, I mean, these are the brilliant pioneer entrepreneurs. I mean, they were path breakers. They came up with things that are still like this, just the normal. And, and they all believe in design. Uh, a guy named Paul Dirac, and the name Dirac, there's some things associated with him. He's one of, the, one of the originators of modern quantum mechanics. So most of his life, he was skeptical in the existence of God. But later in life, he said, the universe is so well designed that all of the laws of the universe are like a mathematical theory of great beauty. It's like you know, he was a scientist and a mathematician. It's like it's beautiful in its complexity. And he says, you might wonder why. Why is the universe this way? He says, we don't know. We must just simply accept it. However, he goes on. One could perhaps describe the situation by saying, God is a mathematician of very high order. 
and he used advanced mathematics in constructing the universe. I mean, he's one of the fathers of, of modern science. Heisenberg, if you've heard of Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty, I have repeatedly been compelled to ponder on the relationship of science and religion for which I have never been able to doubt the realities to which science and religion point. I, I, again, this is, not a, this is not a guy teaching at a, at a local you know, you know, community college. These are the brilliant leaders of science. If you've heard of Schrodinger's cat and the paradox of his cat, the scientific picture of the world around me is very deficient. I'm a scientist. The scientific picture of the world is deficient. It gives me a lot of factual information, but it is ghastly silent about all that is really near to our heart, about all that really matters. Science knows nothing of beauty and ugly, good or bad, God and eternity. Science pretends to answer the questions, but the answers are very often so silly, we are not inclined to take them seriously. He's one, of the, he's one of the pioneers of science, recognizing the limits of science, but also recognizing that science is pointing to something. Max Planck, he was the guy of Planck's constant in quantum energy. There can never be any real opposition between religion and science, for the one is a complement of the other, and then he says, therefore, on to God. Okay, now, by the way, not one of them is Christian. All of them are leading scientists. All of them are leading scientists to say, I can no longer believe in atheism. I can no longer believe in an accidental universe. I can no longer believe in a random universe of no meaning. I now believe that the universe is finely tuned, rich, richly constructed for life. There's got to be a designer. I tell you what, Christians, you don't have to be, you don't have to be upset about science. Science does, not, science does not conflict with Christianity. Now, materialistic science with this assumptions does. And of course, that's what gets presented in just about every high school class and college classes. But there's a growing movement worldwide of scientists who are coming to grips with, uh, there's a designer out there. There's a brilliant mathematician out there that has made everything. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Before the beginning, God. What is this God like? Well, Genesis 1 just goes on and says a whole bunch of things. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, gods. All the other religions of the day, many gods, you know, one God might be the most powerful, but lots of different gods, small gods. Um, this one God is God the creator. It's not a part of creation. It's not, you know, it's not associated with a, an aspect of creation. All the other religions, every God was associated with a part of creation, the God of wind, God of earth, God of fire, God of, sounds like a, a music group. <laughs> the God of the sun, the God of the moon, you know, their, their, their gods were associated with a part of creation. No, the, the biblical God of Genesis chapter 1 is, was transcendent and greater apart from his creation. And this, this God of Genesis 1 is the almighty God. I mean, he brings everything into existence without effort, effortlessly. He speaks and it is. Whereas in all the other councils, like the gods are struggling and they're fighting and they're precarious and some of them die. And, and I mean, it's like a free-for-all with the gods. I mean, so the, the, the God of Genesis 1 is so radically different from all of those other ancient Near Eastern religions. That's, that's, why, that's why Genesis 1 was written. It's not trying to answer scientific questions, although we can get some, we can get some insights for, for some of those questions today, but it was written to say, this is your God. Israel, this is your God, the creator God, one God, eternal from everlasting to everlasting, almighty, sovereign, distinct from creation. And therefore, the question comes, what do we do with a God like that? Of course, the first answer is just believe. Have faith. You know, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it's like about the only place where it says, man, if you're going to come to God, you just have to have faith. 
Believe that exists. The Apostles' Creed, since about 150 A.D., we have been confessing, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Nicene Creed that came along about 325 A.D. just developed that a little bit. But we believe in the one God, the maker of heaven and earth. And also we believe in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ who also is the maker and creator of all things. I mean, we, we, we just we choose to believe. Everybody at some point has to start with a, a, a starting point. You believe. I mean, everybody, Christian, Jew, atheist, materialist. I mean, everybody has a starting point that we just, we, we, you just can't go back any further. But here's, here's what Genesis 1 and really all the Bible is designed. And you see this so powerfully in the Psalms. Man, what do, what do you do with a God like this? Worship with all reverence delight, wonder, amazement, being overwhelmed by a God like this. You know, we have communion now. And of course at the core of communion is Jesus Christ, the Savior God. But long before he became the Savior God, he was the Creator God who made life and love and light and all good things he made you and what he needed to do, and we're going to get to this in the last month of, of, of the summer, is things went really bad, and so he had to come and, and set things right, and he did that on the cross. 